0: Hello, and welcome to Narrative, a journey into the ancient art of storytelling. I am your host, Mary Rogers. As the seasons change and we move through the wheel of the year, Samhain marks the death of the Horn God, or the Green God. From Samhain till Imbolc, we move through the winter season. And this is a perfect time for us to study the dark gods and goddesses of the underworld, as they pertain to our own shadow selves. But first, I want to take an opportunity to discuss some of the things that come up a lot in comparative mythology. While names and small details may change, you will notice that throughout history and regions, many of the stories still remain the same. It also gets a little confusing when working through mythological studies, as there are so many different versions of every tale. But what does remain consistent is that every version of every story Relates to a different aspect of our own psyche. And it'll take on different meanings depending on where we're at in our own lives. So, as we explore our shadows through the winter season, I'll be including different versions of each tale, or deeper understanding of why each version is important as a whole. A fun fact about me is that I don't really subscribe to any religion in particular, though I was raised Christian and I've been ordained as a minister twice. And I am certified as a master of Wicca. I consider my beliefs to align more with Omnism and Paganism, in the traditional studies of the Bards, Ovates, and Druids. I'm Native American, Crow, and my tribe is located in Montana. And I think because of this, I tend to find myself more drawn to earth-based ancestral worship. And yet, I really believe that every faith is so personal, pertinent, and sacred. When I was becoming certified as a master of Wicca, I found a lot of it just wasn't for me. But my favorite studies were on the Sabbaths, esbats, and the equinoxes. I loved connecting the holidays to the cycles of the seasons. When you walk the spiral path of the Ouroboros, the one thing you do come to understand is that life is cyclical. The one constant in life is that nothing ever remains the same. And our lives follow the seasons. In fall, when the leaves drop and the trees bare their spines, we learn to let go. We learn the moon waxes and wanes, and that just as the tide and seasons change, so do we. In the winter, plants go dormant, and the wilderness goes into hibernation. Here, we learn of death and struggle, and the sacred art of going within. In the spring, we watch as plants begin to sprout and water that has been frozen begins to flow. In summer, we watch nature grow in bounty and plenty as everything blooms and flourishes, just as we do when we're in the summer of our lives. And with these immersive observations, we can form a deeper connection with Gaia and with nature with our ancestors as sacred keepers of the land. Ultimately, we come to understand that nothing is ever really lost. Energy can never be destroyed, only altered or transformed. And as the seasons change, so do the cycles of our lives, returning us time and time again back to the spiral path. Did you know the Wheel of the Year, the term and study, actually came from Jacob Grimm? He's one of the mythologists in the popular duo, The Brothers Grimm, and this was back in 1835. And you'll notice that as I share stories, I will often correlate them with the will of the year. So back to the various versions of stories being told. When we come across a tale with multiple versions, it's one of the best indications that we're dealing with real and ancient folklore. As most of the stories been passed orally, long before they were ever written down. Each time it is retold, there's a new variation. Because every time the story is told, it's fed by that particular storyteller. And as the story passes from person to person, throughout centuries, continents, and cultures, the more variations a particular story will have. So as we explore these stories, you're going to see that most of these tales that began as horror-filled narratives, have evolved into the cliched version of Happily Ever After. But fairy tales used to be very dark and were originally imbued with heavy messages of warnings and consequence. I also want to point out that as I've been in mythological studies for as long as I can remember, one of the things that's always really disturbed me is how cruel the venerated gods of old are. Like Coronas, he devoured his children. Or Medusa, um, the version in which she was punished by another goddess for being raped. Cannibalism and rape are actually frequent plot lines. And most of the gods and goddesses were portrayed with human qualities. They also come from a time when there wasn't necessarily law or order, and they didn't have the same concepts around good and evil or right versus wrong. It was more about what was, what you do or don't do. And the ancient Greeks lived in a very difficult time in history, so their stories reflect the world around them. They would use stories to make sense of the chaos that was their lives. And they didn't look to the gods as a moral compass. They were considered otherworldly and proud and were held to different standards than humans. The gods existed beyond human morality And many of their actions were motivated by pride and uncontrolled emotion. For instance, Hera, the goddess of lawful marriage, could also be seen as the goddess of revenge. She maimed and killed so many of Zeus's wives and children out of nothing more than jealous rage. In fact, most of the gods and goddesses hold vengeance in their hearts, wherein they will punish, maim, kill, disfigure, or torture their opponent for eternity. The cruelty of the gods is so prominent throughout that I did a comprehensive study on it, and their origins were really interesting to find. I not only geek out on comparative mythology, but also comparative religion. And that's exactly the rabbit hole I fell down when I began researching the cruelty of the gods. So just to give you a little bit of back history, a few years ago, I spent several years researching the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New I wanted to know who wrote it, who chose the canon, were the Gnostic texts real? Why were certain books of the Bible removed or not included? I wanted to know it all. And as I talk about this, I really ask that you stay with me, stay curious, and have an open mind. I'm in no way condemning or trying to change anyone's beliefs. As I stated earlier, faith is deeply personal and sacred and I would never dissuade anyone from their beliefs. I have respect for them all. So in doing this study, I started with translations, Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. I even spent a great deal of time with a rabbi. Besides being surprised that punctuation wasn't used within the Greek language, I was probably the most shocked to learn that the beginning of Genesis doesn't exactly translate as the Bibles we read today. For instance, the use of the word Elohim implies that there was more than one God at the time of creation. And it was equally wild when the rabbi told me that in deep religious scholarly sects, it's known that God was not monotheistic, but rather polytheistic. And that when Abraham chose one of the gods from the many gods, when he said, you will be our God and we will be your people, a sacred covenant was made. But Abraham was henotheist, meaning he acknowledged the existence of other gods, but only worshipped one. And all of this took me down another rabbit hole, in, when, in which I then met the Anunnaki. Sumerian cuneiform texts are the first recorded writings of civilization. And in them is a creation story that follows the Old Testament, but it's also vastly different. The cuneiform tablets speak of alien gods that created humanity to be their slaves, to be their servants. There were three main Akkadian godheads, on, who's not really talked about, a lot about, Anil and Enki. And Lil was cruel. He viewed humanity as an ant farm, to be squished as he will. But Enki saw something special in mankind. He saw the humans as his children. After all, he had blessed the first human with a spark of his own divinity within our DNA. Enki wanted to teach humans to become critical thinkers, to make tools, to be self sufficient, to become intelligent, culturized. He wanted humanity to thrive. Interestingly, Enki is depicted as a snake in the Garden of Eden. He wanted to feed Adam and Eve from the tree of knowledge to give them power over their destiny. The Sumerian tablets say that Enki had green scale-like skin. So in this version, Enki, who is now depicted as Satan, was actually for the evolution of humanity. Enlil, who's now depicted as God, wanted to keep humans controlled as to keep them as baseless servants. The story of Enki is one who actually suppresses time and culture, as he later becomes the Egyptian Tho, the thrice-born, and is the author of the Emerald Tablets. All of this is to say that I've surmised part of the cruelty that came from the gods is in part because they always viewed humanity as a lower class of people, unworthy of kindness and compassion, though the truth is they rarely displayed kindness and compassion amongst themselves. Following this pathwork, though, today I would like to share a couple of stories about Enki. Next week, I will be retelling the descent of Inanna, as Inanna is also a prominent goddess from the Akkadian Babylonian area era. She's the daughter of Enki, and the tale of her descent has been recited throughout history. Next week, I'll be bringing you some new insights and various versions of what most considered to be the original tale. So in today's story, the elder gods are living a life of leisure and pleasure, while making the younger gods do all of the work in maintaining creation. The younger gods have no time to rest because there's always so much to do, and they're exhausted. So Enki proposes that they create lesser beings who will be co-workers with them. They have no idea what to make these new creatures out of until one of the gods— Wilu volunteers himself as a sacrifice and is killed. His flesh, blood, and intelligence are kneaded into clay by the mother goddess, from which she creates seven males and seven females. These 14 new creatures, humans, are exceptionally fertile, and soon there are hundreds and then thousands of people on earth, all doing the work the younger gods once had to. At first, the people are exactly what the gods had hoped for. But as they grew in number, they started becoming louder and more and more of a problem. Their constant noise and difficulties disturbed the sleep of Enlil, king of the gods, and distracted him from both his daily tasks and his leisure. So he decides to cut down the population through a series of plagues. First, he sends a drought, then pestilence, then famine. And each time, the people appeal to their father god, Enki, and he helps them by telling them what they should do to return the earth to balance and productivity and their communities to full health. Enlil gets frustrated, as there now seems to be even more people than when he first tried to get rid of them. So he convinces the other gods to allow him to unleash a great flood, which will destroy humanity he's powerful enough to get them all to agree. Enki recognizes the cruelty and injustice of the plan, but no matter how much he pleads, he can't deter Enlil from his plan. So Enki roams the earth, searching for an honest and honorable man. He finds one who is both wise and kind, and whom he believes that other people will listen to. And Enki instructs him to build an ark, and enter it with the seeds of the males and females of every living creation. So I'd also like to just interject here for a moment. For anyone who's ever wondered how the story of Noah's Ark could be real, this made a lot of sense to me. Noah was basically the captain of a floating egg and sperm bank. Okay, so he completes the Ark just as the flood begins. The people cry out for help for the gods, but the cries are met with silence. At some point, all the other gods even are wailing a grief, along with the humans, and Enlil finally conceives that the flood may have not have been his best idea. But by now, it's too late. Everyone on Earth is dead. After some time, the flood waters subside. The ark comes to rest, and the man Enki has chosen emerges and makes sacrifices to the gods. And the sweet smell of these sacrifices flowed up to heaven. And then Lil realizes there was a survivor. He instantly knows that Enki is behind this. And even though he was just regretting what he had done, he decides to focus all of his fury on Enki. Enki explains himself and shows how good and kind the survivor is, and directs all the gods to the sweet sacrifice. And this pleases the gods. And while they're eating the sacrifice, Enki decides to propose a new plan. The gods will create beings who are less fertile. Infants will be carried away by demons. Women will suffer miscarriages or become infertile, while other women will be consecrated to the gods and they'll remain virgins throughout their entire lives. Further, he proposes that humans should have a shorter lifespan. And in the time they do have... The gods can create opportunities for them to die at a moment's notice. The gods agreed to this proposal and said it is good. In every story or legend, Enki is associated with the heights and depths of universal understanding. He's always seen as a friend to humanity. When given a choice between serving the will of the gods or the needs of the people, Enki always chose human interest and always the path of compassion, forgiveness, and wisdom. Now, studying language, we know that Akkadian writings came after the Sumerian cuneiform. Akkadian writing would later be used to create Amorite, and eventually, around the 10th century BCE, we get Proto-Semitic script followed by the Phoenician alphabet, which in turn became the Aramaic alphabet and eventually the Paleo-Hebrew alphabet. And they bring this up because over time, there's been a lot lost in translation. Some words don't have an exact English translation and or in some cases, the translation changed the meaning entirely. So for instance, in Genesis 2.15, in our Bibles of today, we would read, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So it might surprise you to hear that the correct translation from these ancient clay tablets actually reads, The men who serve the gods work for them in the garden and are treated like animals. And this is a reoccurring theme written within the clay tablets. The Garden of Eden was where the gods lived in luxury, while their slaves carried out the more menial tasks and basically served them. The original text refers to Karsag, which translates roughly to the city of the gods. And who is Adam in the story of creation? Interestingly, Adam is a Sumerian word which translates to animals. And Satan, or Satam, in ancient Sumerian, actually translates as administrator. So there's nothing inherently evil or foul-natured about this word or being. Other than from what we know of later religious texts. And this word will be of particular importance when we start to explore the earliest Garden of Eden story. Finally, I want to explore the word which would later be translated as apple, it's niche. And the Sumerian word doesn't mean apple, but rather tool or tree. And as I stated earlier, the stories which come from the Sumerian tablets tell not of one god, but several. So in them, Enlil is referred to as the great Satan, meaning the great administrator, but is similar to a dictator. He's angry, domineering, controlling. He doesn't view humanity as anything more than animals or slaves whose sole purpose is to serve him and his kind. Enki, on the other hand, also known as the serpent due to his scale-like complexion, was also known as the god of wisdom. And the tablets refer to early forms of genetic uh, and created what we would know as Homo sapiens. These original humans were naturally subservient to the gods. They didn't question orders or even or even have free will by all accounts. And the tablets differ quite drastically from the Genesis story in that a god was sacrificed in order to combine their blood. This is a literal translation with these new humans, along with the elements of the earth. Enki secretly altered some of the genes within a certain group of humanity. He was considered the first recorded geneticist. And this change in DNA would allow enlightenment to take place within humans. I think it's interesting to note that scientifically it is, it is said that the chromosome 2 in humans was in fact altered. And as time goes on, humans become more independent and they discover the ability to disobey the gods. They choose not to be subservient. Enlil is outraged and asks Enki to go and talk to the humans on behalf of the gods. So Enki approaches a woman in the garden and provides them with niche, a tool. He explains that humanity can either use either side of this tool. On the one side, they can use it for building or fixing, or they can use it for fighting, defending, and conquering due to their oppression at the hands of the gods and the realization they now have the means to revolt, the humans are said to have done exactly that. They launched an attack against the gods, which ultimately fails, and the surviving humans were put back to work. So what did Enki give mankind? A choice. There are so many times in our lives when we feel trapped or stuck or like victims to circumstance. And the truth is we always have a choice. It's not always easy to remember this when we're in the thick of something. And many times we know there's an alternative. We may even know what that alternative is, but we're too afraid to choose another path. Be it for financial reasons, because we fear rejection or failure, whatever it may be, the truth still remains. That when we aren't happy, we always have the opportunity to choose something different. And while many believe in reincarnation, the truth is that none of us actually know 100% without a shadow of a doubt. What we do know is that we've been given this one life, this one precious and wild life that we are experiencing in this moment right now. And it is my hope that you will choose joy always, even when making that choice can be so hard. This life is far too short to live unhappily and repressed. And there are so many of us who keep ourselves small, who feel unworthy, who feel unloved. And when we can dig deep and heal those fractured parts of ourselves, we begin to feel the bigness that is us. We can begin to feel brave and courageous, even if it's only one small step at a time. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Narrative. If you are moved by today's episode and are looking forward to future broadcasts, be sure to hit subscribe. And as always, likes and shares are always appreciated and donations are always welcomed. I had a great time with you today. And I can't wait to be with you again next week. Yours truly, XOXO, Mary Rogers.